God does not stop transforming us once we place our faith in Christ. Through a lifelong process called sanctification, God makes us look more and more like Jesus. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at our website, Radical.net. But today, in this message from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, David Platt helps us understand the process of sanctification, including the fact that this is not something we do in our own strength. True abiding transformation only comes about through the power of the Spirit as we continually behold the glory of the Lord. Here's David with the sermon titled, The Cross and Christian Sanctification, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. As you find your seats, if you have his word, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Feel free to use table of contents in Bible if you need to, to find 2 Corinthians in the New Testament after the Gospels. You'll come to Acts and Romans, then 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And pull out that worship guide that hopefully you received when you came in. It's got some notes that will guide our time together tonight as we talk about the cross and Christian sanctification. So one of the doctrines... In Scripture, that I, we talk a lot about is the doctrine of justification. What it means to be justified before God. And then one of the reasons we talk about it is because this is a doctrine that has been confused and misunderstood throughout the history of Christianity. Going back to the first century, all the way to the 21st century. It was this doctrine, the doctrine of such justification that was at the center of the Protestant Reformation centuries ago. When Martin Luther stood before the Catholic Church and said, we are not justified by what we do for God. We're justified by what God has done for us. Justification is the crux of the gospel. So for every non-Christian who is here tonight, this is the good news that we hope you will hear in our singing and in our praying. And even now, as I preach, we pray that this Good news will make its way from your ears into your heart. The good news that God loves you. God loves you. And he has made a way for you to be saved from the penalty of your sin against God. And the good news is that that way is not dependent on anything you can do or must do for God. We had the opportunity to share the gospel yesterday with a man whose entire belief system is based on what he can do to earn his way to God. And we shared with him the good news of the God who has made his way to us. God has come to us in the person of Christ. And get this, just let this soak in. God himself has graciously paid the price for our sin against him. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. At the cross, Jesus took the punishment that you or I, you and I are due for our sin against God. And He has paid that price for us. All that is left for us to do, for you and me to do, is to trust in His love for us, His Lordship over us. You say, that's all I have to do is trust. I only have to put my faith in Jesus. And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And turn from your sin and yourself. Trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the good news of the gospel is that when you do that, so even tonight, right, where you're sitting, you can turn from your sin and yourself, trust in God's love for you, and tonight be declared not guilty before God. Not just now, but forever. Not guilty for your sin by trusting in His love. For you. This is the doctrine of justification. And it inevitably directly leads into the doctrine of sanctification. So what happens once you've been declared not guilty before God? What changes after that moment when you turn from your sin yourself and you trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord? What changes? And the answer is everything changes. 
The Bible teaches that at the moment of justification, God not only forgives you of your sin, but he frees you from sin and he fills you with his spirit. And your life begins to take on an entirely new trajectory. And that trajectory is what is summed up in the doctrine of sanctification. So for every Christian in this room, for every non-Christian in this room, I might become a Christian tonight, I might become a Christian at some point. This is an extremely important doctrine because this doctrine basically summarizes the whole of the Christian life. When our pastors, elders went away on our annual retreat a couple of months ago and we were praying and asking the Lord what he was wanting to teach us as a church, this is one of the things that that came up in particular, this doctrine of sanctification, that we need to constantly revisit what it means to grow in Christ, to progress in our life in Christ. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to show you a picture of sanctification in 2 Corinthians. Sanctification is one of the major themes of this book. So 2 Corinthians 3 is kind of where we're going to start, and we're going to be all over this book, turning constantly to different places in this book. And what I've done is you look down at your notes and kind of the bold, what I've given you is a definition of sanctification. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through that definition step by step and along the way pause to practically consider how this doctrine that may seem even a bit distant, sanctification, what does this have to do with my life, has everything to do with every single detail of your life. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Here's what it means. Sanctification is the process. And that's a key word that distinguishes justification from sanctification. So justification occurs at a point in time. Whereas sanctification is a process over time. So there's a point when you trust in Christ to forgive you of your sins. And that point of justification begins a process of sanctification. Think about Birth, for example. That's one of the images that the Bible uses to describe justification. Being justified is like being born. Being born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. And once you're born, that triggers a process in which you grow. So almost exactly a year ago, a baby named Isaiah was born into our family. And at that point, all he could do was lie there, eat, sleep, cry, and other things we won't talk about. So now, a year later, this kid is all over the place. You let little Isaiah alone in the house for half an hour, crawling around, and the house will turn into a total wreck. He's grown. He's doing things that he couldn't do before. When he was, when he was born, he couldn't do these things. Now that he's grown, he can do these things. This is a picture. We're born again in Christ that begins a life where we do more and more and more and more in Christ as we grow. This is the Christian life. And so this is why sometimes scripture talks about salvation as a past event, something that's happened to us, like we have been saved. Romans 3, 21, which is in parentheses there, talks about how we're justified before God through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, which is not in parentheses there, talks about how it's by grace. You have been saved through faith. So for Christians in this room, there was a point in the past when you were saved. But then you see in other places in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, that talks about how we are being saved. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, to those who are being sanctified. So Scripture also talks about how we're being saved. What, what Scripture's talking about when it refers to that past, we have been saved, justification. When it's talking about we are being saved, that's sanctification. Key distinction. Maybe another way to put that. Justification refers to how we stand before God. Sanctification refers to how we live before God. Romans 5-8, through a great example of this. Romans 5-1 says, Since we have been justified by God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for all who've been justified before God, we have peace with God. Romans 5 goes on. We were once enemies of God, but now we're friends of God. We have peace with Him. And then what happens in the chapters that follow, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, in Romans, we see this picture of, okay, we've died to sin, We're alive in Christ. Therefore, don't give your body over to sin. Give your body over to righteousness and life in Christ and live in righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. So live for the glory of God. Same thing in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 through 21. The whole book of Galatians revolves around justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then, after Paul in Galatians 2, 15 through 19, talks about how we're justified by faith, he gets to verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, 
and I no longer live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, Christ lives in me. So justified by faith, leading to life by faith. Saved by faith and being saved by faith. I'm justified by faith. I'm sanctified by faith. So all of that leads up to the main verse that I want us to kind of hone in on tonight. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This verse, you might underline it in your Bible, is one of the greatest pictures of sanctification that we have in all of Scripture. And Paul says there, you read along there with me as I read aloud, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So notice how Paul is describing here exactly what we were just talking about, this process of sanctification, transformation. The language he uses is going from one degree of glory to another. Basically, a process of growing from one degree of Christ-likeness to another. So yet again, see this contrast in your notes. Justification knows no degrees. In other words, you aren't partly justified or kind of justified or somewhat justified or almost justified. No, you're either justified or you're not justified. You're either declared not guilty before God or you're declared guilty before God. You've either trusted in Christ to forgive you of your sins or you've not trusted in Christ to forgive you of your sins. That's, that's, there's no degrees in justification. However, sanctification progresses in degrees. And this whole picture, this process of the Christian life is a progression of degree of light and degree of likeness to Christ. And the goal of the Christian life in this sense is to look more and more and more like Christ, to look more like Jesus now than we did last week. To look more like Jesus now than we did last month or last year. That's worth pausing and just just sitting back and asking the question in your life. Do you look more like Jesus today than you did a year ago at this time? Do you look more like Jesus today than you did a month ago at this time? Do you look more like Jesus tonight than you did maybe last week when you were sitting in here? Maybe another way to put it, is your goal this week to look more like Jesus next Sunday than you do at this moment. This is God's goal for you. First Thessalonians 4 makes clear, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, to bring you more into the image of Christ. To progress in degree of likeness to Christ on a continual basis. Now, make sure you got the distinction. That doesn't mean we're being justified over and over and over again. This is so key. I think sometimes as we grow in Christ... We come to new realizations in our Christian lives. And when we come to those new realizations, it's almost like blinders come off our eyes and we think, oh, I've never realized this before. How did I miss this? And in those kinds of moments, sometimes people start to conclude, this was so obvious, I don't know how I could have missed it. Then they think, well, maybe I wasn't even a Christian before. For example, some people, professing Christians, will come to a point in their life where they realize in a deeper way what it means to be surrendered to Christ which is great. But then they'll start to think, well, I guess I wasn't surrendered to Christ like this before. Maybe that means I wasn't even a Christian before. Or a Christian might come to a new understanding of something in the Christian life, like prayer, for example. And all of a sudden, prayer will move from this this rote, religious, routine activity to really being life-giving, some time that you look forward to and you long for. And it's almost like a Christian will start to think, I don't even know if I've ever even prayed before this. I've missed the entire point. I don't know if I've ever even talked to God. Eyes open in a whole new way to prayer. And so people start to conclude, well, maybe I wasn't a Christian before. And so this is where I want to encourage us to be careful. Yes, We're going to talk about this in a minute. There are many people who call themselves Christians who are not actually Christians. I'm guessing some people in this room tonight. And they, you, may need to come to the realization that you've never actually trusted in Christ alone to save you from your sins. You've never put your faith in Him as Lord over your life. And if that's the case, then I want to urge you to do that tonight. 
And I pray that the Lord will make that clear in your heart tonight. At the same time, I want to encourage many of you who are indeed Christians, who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior over you, and you know Christ. When you come to new realizations about who Christ is and what it means to follow him, this does not mean you're being justified all over again. Remember, you were justified when you first repented of sin and believed in Christ, when you trusted in Christ for salvation. Now you're growing in Christ, progressing in degree of likeness to Christ. This is a process that will involve new realizations every single step of the way. And as you grow, it's not being justified over and over again, which would mean you need to doubt your salvation, question your salvation. Did it really happen that time? What about this time? What about this time? What about this time? No, this is the process of sanctification where God is gradually bringing us to a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding of what it means to follow him as Lord and be loved by him as Father. So don't confuse these two, justification and sanctification. When we think about sanctification, realize this is God's goal for you to gradually grow, to progress in degree of likeness to Christ. And God is committed to making this process a reality in your life. Sanctification is the process by which God, now we're going to see in a minute how our work factors into all this, but I don't want us to forget because the Bible doesn't let us forget that there's at this point in time when we're saved, justification and this process over time by which we're being saved, sanctification, both of them are totally the work of God. So sometimes we have this idea, I'm justified by faith and what Christ did for me. Now I'm sanctified. Now it's time for me to put some work on the table, try to even this thing out. Don't, don't think that way. We're justified by faith and we're sanctified by faith. It's all faith and it's all dependent on God. This is God and his initiative, his power, his mercy, and his grace brings about justification. And God and his initiative, his power, his mercy, his grace brings about sanctification. God does it all. Let me show it to you. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul here is, is talking about his desire to, to be more like Christ. He's talking about Christ, his desire to be more like Christ. And listen to what he says in verse 21 and 22. The Bible says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now that is a loaded verse, but, or a couple of verses, but look at that word anointed there. It literally means to be set apart by God, which is the reality of what sanctification is all about. We're set apart to become like Christ. So listen to who's doing this. It is God who establishes us. And God who has anointed us. So we are sanctified by God the Father. We're sanctified by God the Father. And, and just as a side note, I put uh, in parentheses there, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, and then 2 Corinthians 16, 14. But I have no idea why I put 2 Corinthians 16, 14 in your notes. There's no such thing. It, it doesn't exist. Like you turn, try to find it. There's only 13 chapters in Second Corinthians. I, usually, I put the outline together, and I turn it in, and I go back and kind of write a manuscript. And so that's what I did. And I came out. I'm like, Where, what was I thinking? And it doesn't exist. And so I started thinking. Well, maybe I meant First Corinthians 16:14. So I look at that, and it's a great verse, but it has nothing to do with this. And and then I start looking, all right, well, maybe I'm at 614 or 416. So I look at those, and those are great verses too. They have nothing to do with what we're talking about. I looked all over 2 Corinthians trying to make sense of this, and I got, I got nothing. So uh, if you could figure out what I was thinking, that'd be great. But otherwise, well, regardless, scratch it out. It's not the verse doesn't exist in the Bible. So just scratch that out in your notes. The only thing I could think of, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, so maybe this is it. It's the last verse in the book, and there we see a picture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in one verse. And maybe I was thinking there's a Trinitarian picture here, there's a Trinitarian picture in 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22. So, I don't know. Well, let's go with that. So that's what I was thinking. That's what I meant to put 13, 14. I don't know. Regardless, I want you to see how the whole Trinity is involved in this picture of sanctification. So we're sanctified by God the Father. Second, we're sanctified in God the Son. Paul says, God establishes us with you in Christ. In Christ. And that's really, 
The whole emphasis back in the passage we talked about just a minute ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So turn back there with me to 2 Corinthians 3. I want you to see this. I want you to see the context that leads up to this verse, verse 18, that talks about being transformed into the image of Christ. We're going to start reading in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. And I'll go ahead and give you a, a little advance warning. This, this passage would be a bit confusing at first glance, but hang with me because there's incredible treasure to be discovered here. So start in verse 7. The Bible says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When we all, with unveiled face, here's that verse, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, the background to this passage is Exodus 34, 29-35, which I put in parentheses, and which is in your Bible, by the way. It's a real passage, and that passage talks about how Moses used to go up on a mountain to meet with God. Well, specifically, he went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. Exodus chapter 33 says he would meet with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And the picture is Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God on Mount Sinai, and he received the law of God written on tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and he comes down from the mountain. And as he's coming down from the mountain from this meeting with God, his face was radiating the glory of God. And people could see the glory of God radiating off of his face. So Paul takes that picture in the Old Testament to make a point here in the New Testament. And the point's there in your notes. We become like what we behold. Exodus 34 Moses went up on a mountain to meet with God. He beheld the glory of God. He was exposed to the glory of God. So when he came down the mountain, his face was expressing what he had been exposed to. And it makes sense. We all know this principle to be true. I mentioned Isaiah. Our children, children are the clearest example of this. I look at all four of my kids and I see reflections of me in them, for better or for worse. They act like me. They talk like me. They react like me. Even Isaiah, this 11-month-old, who can't even, who can't talk, just makes noises, will make noises. Heather and I will laugh and we'll say something in certain inflection, and he'll say something in the exact same inflection. There's this mimicking. There's this reflecting. We live under the same roof. We spend a lot of time with each other, and so we reflect each other. I remember a buddy of mine growing up who loved Michael Jordan, and he studied Michael Jordan. He watched every game. Michael Jordan played carefully films on Michael Jordan. When he played basketball, he played like Michael Jordan. Obviously not as good, but he wore Jordan shoes. He had Jordan shorts. He had Jordan shirts. He ran. He shot. His form, his form looked like Michael Jordan. Like it didn't go in like Michael Jordan. The ball didn't, but his form looked like it. And you could tell. I mean, he was obsessed with Michael Jordan. Doesn't, doesn't take long on Facebook on a Saturday like yesterday to see what people's minds and their attention are focused on with team colors and games and talk about this or that, just flowing everywhere. Where, where we focus our minds comes out in our lives. Where we focus our affection comes out in our lives. We become like what we behold. Now, take this reality and apply it to understanding our spiritual lives. The more we look to Christ, the more we will look like Christ. And that is the simple point that Paul's making here. Now, what's interesting is that Paul mentions here, again, going back to Exodus 34, that Moses would put a veil over his face when he came down 
the mountain because glory would be fading away. And he uses this imagery to talk about how many Jewish people in his day were still reading the Bible with a veil over their hearts. They couldn't see. They hadn't realized all they were reading the Old Covenant was being fulfilled in Christ, had been fulfilled in Christ. They were missing it at a veil. But then Paul says in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Right Before that, he had said, only through Christ is it taken away. And so it's when we look to Christ that the veil is taken away. Now, we see later that uh, the next verse, the Lord is the Spirit. So we're going to talk about how the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is working in all this. But Paul says later in chapter 4, verse 5, we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when one turns to Christ, the veil is removed. When you turn to Christ, you behold the glory of God. So Paul says, now here it is, verse 18. Now it makes sense. With unveiled faces, we're beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as we do, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you see it? We become like what we behold. The more we look to Christ, the more we look like Christ. And again, it makes sense. If we fix our attention, our affection on football, then we'll think and we'll talk and we'll dress whatever around football. If we fix our attention on money, then we'll, we'll, we'll think and talk and work toward money. If we fix our attention on this or that, our affection on this and that, then we'll begin to look like this or that. And so if we fix our attention and our affection on Christ, we will begin to look more and more and more like Christ. When we, when we rise in the morning, if we go into our room, close the door, pray to our Father who's unseen, open up this word where we see God in Christ on the pages of Scripture and we behold Him and we look to Him in prayer and we fix our eyes on Christ in a concentrated way in the morning then sets the stage all day long for turning our attention our affection to Christ at different points of the day as we work and as we play and as we do different things. And if that's happening all day long, if we're constantly looking to Christ, then at the end of the day, we're going to look more like Christ than we did at the beginning of the day. It's simple. And yet the converse is also true, right? We get up in the morning and we rush out into our day with no thought of Christ. And all throughout the day, we run in our busyness from this to that, surfing the internet, watching TV, talking about this, thinking about that, none of it having to do with Christ. When we get to the end of the day, we're not going to look more like Christ than we did at the beginning of the day. We're going to look less like Christ. And we're going to look more like the world. We're going to look more like the things we've given our attention and our affection to. And so this is how sanctification works. We're sanctified in God the Son. As we gaze on Christ, we become like Christ. The more we look to Him, the more we look like Him. And in all of that, it's God the Spirit who's doing this work. So keep going here. We're sanctified through God the Spirit, which Paul had mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. And then here in chapter 3, I want you to see how important the Spirit is in this whole process. Let me read you some verses. Just circle every time you see the Spirit mentioned in 2 Corinthians 3. The Spirit of God's all over this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Circle every time you see the Spirit. You know that you're a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Verse 5. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Then you get to the end of the chapter, and he says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then end of that Last verse, the last phrase in the chapter, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what Paul's doing here is he's he's making a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, specifically what God did through his law in the Old Testament and what God does through his Spirit in the New Testament. And understanding this distinction is huge. 
God had promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, I put that in parentheses there, that he was going to make a new covenant with his people. And in that covenant, he wasn't just going to write his law down on stone like he did in the Old Testament, but he was going to write his law on the hearts of his people. He was going to put his law within them. Then he says in Ezekiel chapter 36, I'm going to give my people a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit, my spirit in them. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27 says, I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my commands. So I want you to see the contrast here. This is so significant. The contrast here between following God without the Spirit in you and following God with the Spirit in you. And the reason I want to show you this difference between the Old Testament and New Testament, this seems like, okay, is this just ancient, fun Bible knowledge? No, I am convinced that there are many, maybe majority of Christians in our culture who are attempting to live out Christianity under an Old Covenant, Old Testament picture of the Spirit. This is so huge. Now, I want to be careful in drawing this contrast. I'm not saying that the Spirit of God was not active in the Old Testament. He was, but the Spirit of God is active in a whole new, wonderful way in the New Testament. So see the contrast. Spirit-less Christianity. So Old Testament picture relies on external regulations. Regulations written on stone that the people of God were to obey. The only problem is, in the history of the Old Testament, makes this one thing clear. Those people did not have power in and of themselves to obey those regulations. Before Moses even got down from the mountain with this law, they had already broken that law. In the rest of the Old Testament, we see them over and over and over again rebelling against the law of God. I'm spending time in my time in the Word in the morning and, and the kings, and oh, it's just over and over and over again, disobedience, rebellion against God. They could never measure up to it. Which leads to the second facet of spiritless Christianity. It revolves around our performance for God. Over and over again, they're trying to obey the law, but lacking the power to do so. This is the whole picture that Jesus confronts in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the New Testament. People who were thinking they could be made right before God if only they obeyed the law. And that kind of thinking, Paul says, results in condemnation and death. Because the law demands that you follow it perfectly. And you can't keep all the demands of the law. Nobody can. And the result is the law brings condemnation. It sentences you to death. So why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 7, this is the ministry that brought death. Verse 9, it's the ministry that condemns men. They couldn't follow it. They couldn't keep the covenant commands. And as a result, the commands of God condemned them. Now, I want to pause here because I'm convinced this is how so many professing Christians are living today. We have created a whole religious system and church culture that revolves around performing for God like this. Do this, do that, do this. Pray this prayer, then go to church, read your Bible, be a decent Christian, don't sin. This is what Christianity is all about. And many people have tried that version of Christianity, found it wanting, and left the church behind. Others are fine, are trying that version of Christianity, week after week right now in your life, and it feels pretty empty. And it reduces Christianity to just one among a myriad of other religions in the world where you've got rules and regulations to follow that you do on your own to try to earn the favor of God. And it misses the whole point. Muster up what you can to follow these rules this week. Do your best and God will be pleased. That is not, it's not Christianity. It's not Biblical, spirit-filled Christianity. See the difference here when you realize the role the Spirit of God plays in this. Spirit-filled Christianity relies not on external regulations, but on internal transformation. This is the beauty of what Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised in the Old Testament. God's going to give His people a new heart, a new spirit, which is what we need. This is our problem. We've all got hearts that are set in rebellion against God. What we need is new hearts, not rules, new hearts. And the beauty is, through Christ, God, by His Spirit, has given us new hearts. He's put His Spirit inside of us to transform us from the inside out, not just to tell us what to do, but to give us the want to do it and the ability to do it. Ezekiel 36, 27, I'll put my Spirit within you, and I will cause you to obey my statutes. This is incredible. 
This is what makes the new covenant so much more glorious, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, because when we trust in the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, dwell in us, and to enable us to obey his commands, which means, follow this, Christianity no longer revolves around your performance for God, but Christianity revolves around God's performance in us. It's God working in us through his Spirit, not just a law written on stone telling you what to do and leaving your own on your own to try to do it, but a law written on your heart and the Spirit enabling you ends from the inside out to obey it. God said in Ezekiel, I'm going to live in you and I'm going to enable you to follow me. This is the startling, amazing, breathtaking picture of New Testament Christianity. The Spirit of God is living in you, empowering you, on a daily basis, to become more like Jesus. Huh. And the result of that is not condemnation and death. The result of that is salvation and life. Verse 9, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Exceeded in glory and exceeded in freedom. Look down in verse 17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What does that mean? Is that, is that freedom to do whatever I want? No. Well, Yes, in a sense. It's freedom to do whatever you want. And the beauty is, what you want is now what God wants. It's the Spirit of Christ in you changing your wants. So you want to walk in His statutes. You want to experience the life He has for you. And you have power to experience that. Freedom, life, salvation. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Without the Spirit of God, we are destined to live tired, defeated, dutiful, superficial Christian lives. And by Christian there, I mean the culturally acceptable Christian life that in so many ways operates on an understanding, Old Testament understanding of the law. I need to do this, I have to do that in order to appease God and save my skin for eternity. But that is not Biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not about superficial duty on a daily basis. It's about supernatural delight on a daily basis. And I've got a feeling that across this room, there are some of you, when you look at your Christianity right now, it seems a lot more like superficial duty. And I want to call you to supernatural delight in Christ, through dependence on the Spirit of God dwelling in you, who brings all of this about. So that obedience doesn't look like a have to in our lives. Obedience is a want to. And we have freedom to experience all that God has designed and created us for because of the power of His Spirit at work within us. The Spirit of God inside of us, transforming us from the inside out. Sanctification, the process by which God transforms our lives. Now, I want to be careful even in talking about the beauty of the Spirit in us. I don't want to imply that that means this is just easy. That sanctification is like riding a bike down a smooth hill with the breeze blowing through your hair and everything is just like, I want you to see the battle for transformation. I want you to see the battle that's involved here in sanctification. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. You know, there's, there's different places in 2 Corinthians where Paul references the spiritual battle that's going on around us. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul talks about how we'd, we'd being, not being outwitted by Satan, not being ignorant of, of the fact that Satan, our adversary, has designs against our sanctification. Chapter 11, verse 14 Paul talks about how Satan often disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive us and to distract us, to pull us away from Christ. Then I want you to hear Paul's language in chapter 10, verse 3. Listen to this. Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, listen to the vocabulary here, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Do you hear that language? War 
weapons of warfare. Follow this. Becoming more and more like Christ is a daily battle. Day by day, moment by moment battle. It's a battle that's going on in this room right now. It's a battle that goes with you as you leave, as you lie down at night, through the night, wake up in the morning battle. Like it's a constant battle. There's a war going on. And in this war, so follow what's happening. God is transforming our minds, which is what First Second Corinthians 10 here is all about. Weapons of our warfare, divine truths that demolish arguments and opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God. The Bible tells us in this battle, take every thought captive. What imagery? To obey Christ. Sanctification is the process of taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Working by the power of the Spirit of God in us to think like Christ more and more and more and more. God transforming our minds. God transforming our affections. Not just the way we think, but the way we feel. You turn back a couple pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You see this picture of affections linked to turning from sin in this battle. Paul's talking about repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and calling the church at Corinth to repent. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Oh, this is so huge. And it goes back to what we were talking about just a minute ago. When we sin and we get caught, are we sorry because we've been caught? Or are we sorry? Are we sorrowful? Are we grieved because we've disobeyed God? Is this how we feel? Is this how you feel when you sin? Is your first thought, oh, this is really going to mess things up for me here, here, here. Or is your first thought, I've disobeyed God and your heart is grieved over this. This is the picture of sanctification. The more we become like Christ, the more we hate sin. The more we become like Christ, the more we love righteousness. This is the process of sanctification. God transforming our minds, our affections, our actions. Second Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, Paul talks about act, acting in such a way that we'll be ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians 12, he calls them away from quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. The more we grow in Christ, the less these things will be evident in us. And the more Christ will be evident through us, God transforms our relationships. Oh, this is one of the things that struck me most this week. Just reading from cover to cover through the book of Second Corinthians to get a glimpse of Paul's love for the people in this church and his exhortations for them to love one another. Uh, let me take you on a tour here. I want to show you how the more we grow in Christ, the more we show the love of Christ to each other in the church. So the more we become like Christ, the more we show the love of Christ to each other in the church. I want you to see how this just oozes off the pages of 2 Corinthians. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. We're going to look at each of these verses just real quickly. And I want you, I want you to see this. Now, keep in mind, this is Paul writing a letter. It's not his first letter. He's written many letters to them. And there's been a lot of division and tension between Paul and the church at Corinth. But here, his love for them. Look at verse 4. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul writing with anguish, with tears, out of abundant love. Turn over a couple more chapters. Chapter 5, verse 14. When Paul's talking about why he's doing what he's doing for their sake, why he's acting like he is among them, why he's writing what he is to them, he gives the reason why. Verse 14, chapter 5, for the love of Christ, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us. What a statement. I don't live for myself anymore. I'm controlled by the love of Christ. Next chapter, chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. He's pleading them for, for them to open their hearts to others, including him. 
Next chapter, chapter 7, verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I've said that before. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Keep going to chapter 11, verse 2. You're seeing just the emotions here. The love of Christ in Paul for his people who he's got, he's got tension with. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. As he's talking about some difficult things with him, he says, here's why. Verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a vir pure virgin to Christ. Same chapter, look over in verse 11. He says, why? Why am I writing these things? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. God knows I love you. One more place, chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says to him there. He's been to them numerous times before. He says, here, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. In other words, I'm not coming for what I can get for you. I'm coming for you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly, listen to this verse, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Oh, I, I was reading through this this week and just seeing on the pages of this book Paul's love for this people. I'm going to get sappy for a minute, but when I read this, I, I think about you. I think about this church. I think about the love God has given me for the people called the church at Brook Hills. I had no clue seven years ago. God, in his grace, brought me to pastor here. What it meant to love people. Like God has given love for this people over the last seven years. And, and, and when the things we've walked through, even talking about it and thinking in the future about radical, sacrificial, risk-taking things, it's all out of love. I want to spend and be spent for your souls. It's a picture of the church, the love that we have for one another. It's the fruit of becoming more and more and more like Christ. And obviously not intended to stay within the church. The more we become like Christ, the more we will spread the love of Christ to others in the world. I want to talk about this more next week when we think about our role as Christians in the world but I want to point out two things in particular this week along these lines. How do we spread the love of Christ to others in the world, according to 2 Corinthians? I think the answer is two primary ways. One, through a clear reflection of God's holiness. Clear reflection of God's holiness. So turn back here to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul talks about living holy lives in this world, specifically when it comes to our relationships with other people in the world. And he says, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is one of those passages that makes very clear why a follower of Christ, for example, would not date or marry someone who is not a follower of Christ. Would not be yoked together with someone in that way. And I want you to see the reasoning why. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Then listen to these rhetorical questions. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? After all these questions, he says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see the picture here. It goes back to what we've already talked about. God dwells in us. His spirit lives in us, which means we are his temple. So in the Old Testament, you had a place that was set apart, the temple. And that place... The temple depicted, demonstrated the holiness of God. The temple was kept pure and holy so that people would see in the temple a picture, a reflection of the character of God. Well, today, there are no holy places like this. The building we are in right now is not a temple. This is definitively not God's house. This is not a holy place. You get to the New Testament, there's no holy places, only holy people. 
Spirit of God dwelling in the people of God. You say, well, how are people, if there's no temple where people can go and see the grandeur and the glory and the holiness of God, if there's no place where they can go see that, then how are they going to see that? I'm glad you asked. They're going to see it in you. And they're going to see it in me. And how are the people who work in your office going to see the glory of God? They're going to see the glory of God in you. How are the people in your neighborhood who are far from Christ going to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? They're going to see the glory of God in you. This is why we must be sanctified, we must be holy, not just for our sake. Sanctification is not merely for our sake. Sanctification is for others' sake, that others might see. If we are not growing in Christ, then people look at our lives, we live just like the world, and yet we call ourselves Christians, then people look at our lives and they see no difference. They don't see the glory of God in Christ in us. As a result, they're not drawn to the glory of God in Christ. Oh, let's be a holy church. Let's grow in the likeness of Christ. Let's become more and more like Christ so that people around us might see the glory of God in Christ in us. Which leads to, okay, so if you stopped here, okay, we just need to be, we're temples, we need to be holy, clean from the world. You might think, well, I just need to separate myself from the world, like not talk to anybody else because they might tempt me to sin and need to go be a monk in a monastery and just separate from myself, myself. But that's not at all what scripture's talking about here because this is talking about going into the world where we reflect the character of God and then keep going here through urgent proclamation of God's gospel. Huh. Then go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 here. Oh, put all this together with what we've already seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So we saw in 2 Corinthians 3, right? The more we behold Christ, the more we become like Christ. The more we look to Christ, the more we look like Christ. And so then, as we go into the world, we look like Christ. We display Christ. We demonstrate Christ. And we declare Christ, which is what Paul talks about right after 2 Corinthians 3 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at what he says in verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What we go into the world looking like Christ more and more every day and declaring Christ to people around us every day. And you want to talk about battle. You want to talk about battle, sanctification, war, Look at what surrounds verse 5. Look at verse 4 right before this. Where Paul says, in their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the, un of, of, un of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You got that picture? So you got it. There's a little g, God in this world, who is blinding the minds of unbelievers all across Birmingham right now. Blinding the minds of unbelievers in this room. Blinding the minds of people in Birmingham. Blinding the minds of people among the nations. Entire groups of people. Blinded. Veil over their eyes. Not seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. God of this world blinding their minds. Now you look in verse 6. Right after verse 5, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's a capital G God over this world who's shining light into hearts. Second Peter 3 9 says he desires all people to repent, come to acknowledge his love in Christ. And he's shining light into hearts. So get the picture here. There is a cosmic battle going on for the souls of men and women all around us. There's a capital G, God over this world, who's shining the light of the gospel into hearts. And he desires all people to know him and enjoy him forever in heaven. At the same time, there's a little G, God in this world, who's blinding the minds of unbelievers and desires every single person in this room, every single person in Birmingham, and every single person among the nations to burn forever in hell. This is cosmic battle that is raging, and we're right in the middle, verse 5, preaching Christ. 
There's nothing more urgent than this. This battle, be careful, be careful, be careful not to let artificial battles on ball fields blind you from real battle that is raging around you right now. And as you talk about those artificial battles this week, which we talk about all the time, artificial things, temporary things, don't forget ultimate thing. Don't forget ultimate reality. Don't forget ultimate battle. The people you're talking to are going to spend the next trillion years either in eternal heaven or eternal hell. So urgently proclaim the gospel to them this week. They're not guaranteed to make it this week. Urgently proclaim the gospel to them this week. This is a part of sanctification. Sanctification is not just us in a holy huddle becoming more and more and more like Jesus. No. Sanctification is becoming more like Christ so that we can more effectively Demonstrate the character, the love of God to those around us as we proclaim the gospel of God to them. So, so is this transformation happening in your life? See the battle for transformation and then see your need for examination. This is the, this is the last place we'll turn in 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul's, Paul, at the end of this letter, he has is, he is called out the church at Corinth on a number of different points and challenging points at that. And he gets to the end and says in verse 5, so examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So Paul gets to the end of this letter, and he said, the Bible says here to the church at Corinth, what I am convinced, what I believe God is saying to every single person in this room gathered tonight with the church at Brook Hills. Same thing. And to every single person in this room, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So I want to call you to, I believe God is calling you to right now, not just the person beside you, in front of you, behind you, right where you're sitting, examine yourself. You say, what does that mean, examine myself? Well, think about it this way. First, do, do you see Evidence of this kind of transformation in your life? Your mind, your affection, your actions, your relationships being transformed more into the image of Christ. Do you see this process of sanctification playing out in your life? Is that process a reality? And if, if the answer to that question is no, if you don't see this process playing out in your life, that I think it's worth asking the question if that point has ever happened in your life. We, we talked about from the very beginning, the point of justification leads to a process of transformation, sanctification. So, so there's scores of people who have supposedly walked through a religious ritual and quote-unquote become a Christian, but nothing has changed in their lives. And, and that's, that's not biblical Christianity. It's not possible to have the Spirit of God in you and yet nothing changed. So is there evidence of process of transformation? And if not, I want to call you, maybe tonight for the first time, to the point of justification. You say, well, how do I know? I can't answer that for you, but I would exhort you, urge you. There's nothing more important than this. This is worth you getting alone by yourself tonight this week for as many hours as you need to before God and asking the question, have I put my faith in him alone to save me? This is not coming up with a list of things you need to do to make yourself better. That misses the whole point. Have you trusted in him to save you from your sin? Have you been justified before God? So examine yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You know, realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So that's, that's one possibility. Now the other 
possibility is, yes, I see this process of, of transformation, of sanctification, but I also see areas of my life where, where I have so much room to grow. I'm pretty confident that any Christian, every Christian in this room, as we've walked through this, there are numerous areas of our thoughts and our affections and our actions and our relationships where we need to grow more into the image of Christ. If you can't think of any areas where you need to grow, maybe start with pride. So, so examine yourselves. What are the areas where you need to grow? Where you need to become more like Christ? To realize that God desires that to happen. It is his will to make you look more like Jesus. So what do you need to turn from and turn to? How can you look more to Christ and as a result look less like the world? Examine yourself with the goal in mind of being transformed into the image of Christ. This is, this is the goal. And, and I put this part at the end of your notes in particular because it came to my attention that there's false teaching spreading in, in different ways here in Birmingham, particularly on college campuses, that says we can get to the point in this life where we're fully transformed in the image of Christ. In other words, we can get to the point where we no longer sin in this world. And false teaching like this is nothing new. There's no new heresy, it's just revised heresy. That throughout the history of Christianity, Satan has disguised himself as the angel of light and pulled people away, deceived people in different ways, and this is one of those ways. As much as I long for the day when sin will be no more in my life, the Bible clearly teaches that this will not happen in this world. Our sanctification will not be complete in this world as it is. This is evident in places like Romans 7, where we see Paul's clear battle with sin. Even 1 John, a book that proponents of this heresy often go to, yet the book opens by saying, 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Anyone who says they have reached sinless, holy perfection clearly does not know God and Christ and the holiness of God in Christ. The very warped understanding of holiness and a warped understanding of salvation and sanctification. Now, some might think, well, well, wouldn't it make sense, though, as you grow in your relationship with God, you become more and more like Christ, maybe you get to the point where you don't see much sin in your life. But I'm convinced, biblically, the act, actually the exact opposite is true. For the more and more and more you get closer to holiness, light, the more you see even that which we would perceive as small sin or small darkness inside of it just becomes all the more clear. John Murray, great quote here, says, Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God, the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the more conscious he will be of the gravity of the sin that remains and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. Was this not the effect in all the people of God in the Bible as they came into closer proximity, proximity to the revelation of God's holiness? The closer you get to God, the more cognizant you become. Even the smallest sins in our lives that separate us from God, they're not small. So this process of sanctification will always be progressing in this world. Now, this is not an excuse for spiritual laziness. First John makes that clear. The Bible says in First John 2, 1, My dear children, I write these things to you so you may not sin. Then he exhorts us to walk in obedience to Christ. First John 3, which is often used as a proof text for sinless perfection, is actually a clear exhortation to daily turn from sin in this world. So some people, maybe, maybe somebody would say, well, if I'm not... If I'm not going to be perfectly sinless in this world on any way, then it's okay for me to sin every once in a while. But a Christian does not say that. Someone who's been justified before God, saved from hell, forgiven of sin, freed from sin, filled with the Spirit of God, will not approach sin casually. And be comfortable with sin. We're not comfortable with sin. 
They hate it. And turn from it more and more. So this is not an excuse for spiritual laziness. This is exhortation to spiritual perseverance. It's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, let's throw off, let's throw off every hindrance, the sin that so easily entangles us, and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Think about it. 2 Corinthians 3, look to Jesus. Behold Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus as we run the author and perfecter of our faith. And mark it down. He is the perfecter of our faith. He will perfect our faith. So our sanctification will never be complete in this world, but our sanctification will be complete in the world to come. And oh, you got to see this. I'm going to put a verse on the screen here in just a minute. So don't start packing up your things and kind of moving on. Like you've got to, you've got to see this verse, particularly tied together with all we've seen in Second Corinthians. So Second Corinthians three eighteen. Remember, we all with unveiled face, unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord. So looking toward Christ, are being transformed in degree from one glory to another, the same image. When we behold Christ, we become like Christ. Right? The more we look to Christ, the more we look like Christ. Now I want you to see how God's word in 1 John 3 ties this with what's to come in heaven. Look at this with me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall, then we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. So you get it? When we finally behold him as he is, we will finally be like him. This is why sanctification won't be complete in this world, because it can't be complete until we fully see Christ. To behold is to become like. To look to is to look like. And one day, we're going to look to and see him perfectly. And on that day, we will look like him perfectly. We'll behold him perfectly. And we'll be like him perfectly. So the Bible says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you get the picture? We're justified for God by faith in Christ. Declared not guilty for our sin. Filled with the Spirit of God, now on a trajectory, a process of transformation, of sanctification, where we are growing from one degree of glory to another, more and more and more into the likeness of Christ. And along this journey, we're looking forward to the day when this life will be no more and we will see His face. We'll see Him as He is. And on that day, this process of sanctification will be complete on a day of glorification or we'll be with him enjoying him forever and ever this is the christian life and we're right here in the battle so i want to exhort you tonight fight the battle and fight the battle not in your own power but in the power of the spirit of the living god who dwells inside of you Well, you have heard us mention the Radical Gap Year before, the program for high school graduates between the ages of 18 and 20, designed to equip and encourage these young people in all areas of life. And we'd like to make one last plug on today's episode since applications for the Radical Gap Year are due on February 28th. So if you are a recent high school graduate between the ages of 18 and 20, and you are interested in leveraging your life for the sake of God's glory among all nations through an incredibly unique program that will help you grow in godly living, intellectual development, and everyday responsibilities and life skills, then go to RadicalGapYear.com and get your application in before the 28th. The Radical Gap Year is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and we love for you to be a part of it. So that's RadicalGapYear.com. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there at Radical.net.